Welcome to TSG Talk. TSG Talk aims to contribute positively towards the care of an injured casualty or vulnerable patient. If your goal is to maximise your input for the people you care for, then TSG Talk is for you. Our podcast will interview colleagues who are at the cutting edge of their professions. Often they're involved in creating solutions for areas that historically have proven difficult or have a wealth of experience in a particular complex response. Each podcast will provide unique, engaging content. At TSG Associates, we will always strive to ensure our solutions are ahead of the curve and positively impact on the quest for prioritising survival and minimising suffering. We believe TSG Talk will complement our vision and provide a platform to enhance your response. It is my pleasure to now pass you across to our host, Senior Partner at TSG, Colin Smart. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of our podcast, TSG Talk. Tonight's episode is Lessons from a Career Responding to Major Incidents. There are only a small number of people who can truly say they have an in-depth understanding of a response to major incidents, and this experience is vital to the analysis of what consistently works or not. With this in mind, let me introduce our guest tonight, David Whitmore. David has a vast experience in pre-hospital care and specifically major incidents, and we are hugely thankful for his time today. So welcome, David. How are you today? Very well, thank you, Colin. I hope you are too. It's uh, nice to talk. Yeah, likewise. We've known each other for many years. I'm always fascinated by one uh, company, but the experience you've had throughout your career, so it'll be wonderful to, to chat through that tonight. David, just before we go into the subject tonight, could you just let our listeners know a little bit about um, your, your wider background in emergency services and then maybe a little bit more specifically on some of your experiences with within the major incident area yes I mean, thanks for that introduction i think very kind of you to say of my experience in these incidents but i think i must mention my colleagues both in london and in other ambulance services we've also sadly um, had to deal with a number of similar experiences myself and i'm sure and some of them they would have done a better job than i have but um Yes, I mean, I joined, I joined the Amit Service, London Amit Service, in September, uh, 15th of September, 1980. So, crikey, 41 years ago nearly. And I was stationed initially, having, having done my initial, in those days, Miller training, so six weeks, and then off you went. I was stationed at Camden, which is just the sort of north of central London, and then at St John's Wood, which was, again, to, to the west of central London by Oxford Street. I then joined, uh, took a career in sort of education and training, but mainly worked in London for the majority of my NHS career. And I also spent some time in the West Country, as was the West Country Ambulance Services from 2000 uh, for a couple of years as head of education development down there. And then following a family bereavement, I moved back up to, to Staffordshire, but stayed working and actually went back to London. Interspersed with that, I suppose, is also I've been working in the sort of search and rescue field, mountain rescue for now 21 years. I started on Dartmoor team one of the Dartmoor teams, Tavistock. Uh, and then when I moved up to the to the Peak District, I've now joined the Derby team. And also, I suppose, for my sins, I chair the medical group of the Peak District Mountain Rescue Organisations. That's seven mountain teams and one cave rescue team. I must stress, I'm not a cave. You will not get me down deep, dark holes. <laughs> um, I suppose in terms of mass casualties, uh, the very first one I dealt with was a, was a fire. You know, it was a cul-de-sac. Uh, it's literally just to the north of Hyde Park near Paddington, Cranricard Gardens fire. Uh, there sadly eight people died uh, that, that night and many, many more burnt and injured. 
And then my last operational day in the, in the NHS Ambulance Service was actually the 22nd of March, 2017. People remember that particular day for the Westminster Bridge attack where four people were, were fatally wounded. I forget the exact numbers, but approximately 50 other people were wounded as well and injured. And between those two dates, I've been going back through an old presentation. In fact, the one I, I gave on your behalf, Colin, in, in Copenhagen. And looking at a map, I did three maps of four, three or four decades of, of London. And there are, I, I reckon, I'm looking at the probably 14 major terrorist incidents and then a number of other things of riots, serious big fires, the train disasters, so things like the um, Paddington train crash, Southall train crash in Cannon Street. And if I look back at it, it's actually, a, it is a large number. And I think we've always said that if you were to spend five years in the service in London, uh, you would, within those five years, you are going to see a major incident of, or mass casualty incident of some kind or another. So I think by its very nature in the capital, yes, we do attract, we did attract those sorts of incidents, I'm afraid. Uh, but as I do stress, my colleagues around the country have also dealt with a, a large, if I look at those, between those two dates, there's been a, another huge number of mass casualty incidents out with London, one of which particularly impacted upon myself, which was Hillsborough, which I will mention a little bit later on. I was not involved in the initial Hillsborough incident, but I was involved in the second round of inquest. And some of the lessons that we'll be talking about here and some of the developments do stem from the last part of the 80s. We had a sadly had a huge number of major incidents across the UK. It's an absolutely fascinating set of experience you've got, David. And, and as you say, it's not just London. There's, there's a lot of external right. stuff you've done as well, which I think is, is hugely relevant. What, what I find really interesting from your experience, and if you look at how we try and take knowledge and design equipment around it, it's always interesting to talk to people who have maybe been to one or two instances because they have a unique look at the specific incident they went on. But I find it even more interesting where you talk to people who have done the multiples because it's not then a one-off experience they can they can then start to analyze what generally works and what generally doesn't and i think that's what we're always trying to get to is if we can introduce a piece of kit or a piece of equipment will it work on the vast amount of occasions and i think that's where people like yourself have got a hugely beneficial history to tell so we can understand what generally works all the time and what generally doesn't work all the time and and that's i suppose what i'd like to try and get from you and pull on your experience to to really enhance people's future response I think one of the things about what goes wrong, or perhaps I use that term going wrong very advisedly, what is difficult at these, at these incidents nearly every time is communications. And I think you have to approach these, these incidents from the point of view that communications are probably going to fail or what worries me nowadays, it will be deliberately disrupted. So I think you need to have in your plans a system, something that can be put into place that people know about should communications either fail or be deliberately disrupted. The use of runners is, is one way of, of, of using that. And if you think about Phythippides at the Battle of Marathon, I mean, he ran from the battle to Athens, etc. As I, as I say, you know, thank goodness he gave his message before he died. He should have had it written down. If you're going to use runners, you must use pen, paper, you make a waterproof paper, and, and you, therefore you need pencils. Now, that's just one very small small thing but I think other things that tend that do tend to become a constant issue but have become a lot better in more recent years are things like triage tags I know that's a subject obviously very very close to your heart but each service in an area using the same triage system it works you've got the same kit we're using the same terminology the same physical tags and you, you can get interoperability. And I think that is absolutely key. So I think in terms of terms of kit, that's one thing. 
how you do the truck's triage is triage is one of those really key elements of a major of mass crash incident. The first thing is get that message back to control. Get your methane message back. Get that back. Invoke the JESIP principles of, of joint operating, etc. But get your triage started. But each agency there needs to be singing off the same triage hymn sheet. And I th- one thing that struck me, particularly on Westminster Bridge, was uh, I was half across the bridge and I, and I, I needed some triage tags. Looked down and at my feet was a Metropolitan Police tri-pack. Didn't matter to me because I knew exactly what was in that tri-pack. I knew that in that tri-pack I was going to find what I needed for both triage and also I did need a couple of bandages from it. I knew I'd find it in there. So I think if you're one of those stages of your career where you are either working in the emergency preventive department or a senior manager, you're looking at kit and equipment, you've got to get in touch with and in t- really close to your partner agencies and think about things like your triage tags, things like tri-packs, and also things like those the commander wallets so that people know how they're going to deal with this. I think I still got the commander wallet that you sent me all those years ago, uh, and it arrived on my desk. Uh, well, it was on my desk when I got back from dealing with the Paddington train crash, and I wish to goodness I'd had it at the time. Um, because that would have helped me as one of the commanders there to get plans sorted out and to get things written down. Yes, I could have done it. I, I did do it. But um, but kit that's designed specifically for that, that's what you need to use. You don't want to be trying to cobble something together um, when it happens. You need to have in the, in the vehicle, be it your command vehicle, be it your staff car, be it the ambulance. You need to have the, the kit to actually deal with what it is you're going to be dealing with. I, in this case, the commander wallet for things like uh, diagrams and, and maps, etc., um, lists of people, etc. And I've I've actually repurposed that particular wallet now for my a mod five, a module five water and flood incident manager. I've just just recently uh, qualified for that. I repurposed that wallet for that purpose. So I haven't got to think about trying to cobble something together on the fly. I've got it. It's in the back of my van. It stays there. And it's all ready to go. So I think in terms of sort of lessons that we, we perhaps need to remember, learn, is communications, I'm afraid, have always been a problem for me. Everything I've been to, it's been an issue. And, it, and I think you have to assume they will either be poor, might fail, or be deliberately disrupted. Any kit you're going to be using for major instance. And you have to accept. I'm afraid if you are the if you're the direct, director of finance, I'm afraid you have to listen to your operational commanders. Sometimes the kit will only have one use. It will be for a major incident and may not have another use outside of that. But you know you need you do need the right the right tools to to, to deal with these sorts of these sorts of things. I'm just trying to think of other other things that have either worked for or gone not gone. I think the other probably the other thing is is you need to have in the back of your mind when you're when the plan that you had in your mind when you first saw the incident. And started to deal with it doesn't work out for you or can't work out you have to be prepared to change the plan but this again is where i'm, I'm probably going to talk about jessip more than once during this and so sorry on that dave can you just explain for for any non-uk listeners what what jessip is oh, just my, oh sorry my apologies yeah, no, no problem uh, uh, jessip is um is united kingdom wide um organization uh, the joint emergency services intraoperability program it, it came about many years ago now from a series of major incidents, and what it does is it um, it insists. And I think I think I do. I use the word insist. Insist that you have joint operational working. You have joint understanding of risk. We use the same uh, methane message. That's the message that we. That's, that's the mnemonic. Um, you will send back to your control. 
that you're declaring a major incident and it talks about it is a major incident, um, the exact location, you know, the hazards that are there, access, egress, access, egress, the number of casualties, et cetera. But because we're all using the same structure, uh, if, I've given, if I'm given the methane message from a fire officer or from, a, from an ambulance person, or even from someone outside the, what you would call the normal blue light services, be it from mountain rescue, lowland rescue, RNLI, whoever, we're all using the same doctrine. So JESSIP is, a, is an organization, but it also imposes a doctrine. There's a, a very good website. Just look at it now, www.jessip.org.uk. Uh, and you'll find on that site an absolute wealth of information. But I think the two things from Jessup that really apply to these situations is messaging, i.e. the METHO message, and then the, the joint operating model of co-location, et cetera. We cannot operate in silos at these instances. We've got to get together. I've got to be speaking with the, the, the firefighters. I've got to be speaking with the police officers or any other major agency that I need to talk to. We have to co-locate and understand what each other's capable of doing, understand the risks that are present and come up with a joint plan. We cannot operate in silos. That just cannot be allowed to happen. So that's just So I would urge those of you who, who don't know of the organisation, it's on the website, uh, very good information on there. That sounds hugely practical and, and sensible what you're saying. And I think just from a bit of international experience there, the Americans have got a similar system in, in the instant command system, the national instant management system, where... Basically, everybody's using the same terminology and the, and the same hierarchies almost. So it's, it sounds like it's a similar thing where everybody is is buying into the same playboard to give it a word, really, I suppose, isn't it? Uh, it's easy. I was speaking at a, a conference in uh, Pennsylvania a couple of years ago now, and it was interesting talking to that model was being talked about. I, I was instantly sort of familiar with it, at home with it, and thought, yeah, it is It is on a, on a par what, what, what Jessup is, is all about. So I think, yes, whichever country you're in, um, I would hope you have a similar system, and um, I would urge people to use it, get into member that. Well, well, what we do after this um, on our, our LinkedIn page and the, on the website, we'll, we'll pop up the websites for both the British and the American yeah. systems for people to reference, because yeah. I, I think both of them are, are, are excellent templates for, for what, what you're, you're saying is such a critical part to, to successful major incident management? It, it, I, think, I think, and also, I mean, Jessup, if you look at Jessup when it was in its, in its sort of infancy and what it is now, it, it is different. It changes and it's informed. But there's a, a section on there around joint, uh, joint organisational learning which is absolutely crucial. And if something is found not to quite work, then let's change it. Let's promulgate that, the changes. And that, again, is what Jess is very good at. And also other sites, there's another one, uh, National Resilience, where, again, we're sharing information across organisations that may not necessarily be the blue light organisation. The big foot, you know, big people like, you know, gas, oil, electricity, they have incidents as well. And we can learn from how they deal with some of these things as well. Because also on occasions, we're going to be involved so again, I would urge people to look much wider mm. than just purely Jessup. Jessup is the key. I mean, to me, Jessup is the key. Mm-hmm. But there are other things like National Resilience, NARU, sorry, the National Ambulance Resilience Unit, and also do understand what is being promulgated to the public. So things like Citizen Aid, the public will be looking at that. So you need to understand what the public are being told as well, so that you can you know, deal with that. If, if you've got somebody who's going down a Citizen Aid pattern, 
but you will need to also bring it in with with Jessup, etc. So, um, so that's I think again, know what's out there because at the time of this happening is not the time to learn to dance. Yeah, and I, and I think that is such a such a good saying, isn't it? It's yeah. it, it's really it seems to me from the people I talk to who's who's done this a lot, it seems to be a measure of your success is down to your good preparation and, and attention to detail before you turn up. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and I think have I always been. Have I always practiced what I've preached? Probably not. If I'm being very honest about it, probably not. And I think that's because these these incidents happen by their very, very nature. They happen out of the blue when you least expect it. I look at Westminster Bridge in particular. That was my last day in the ambulance service operationally. I was ready to go home. Next thing I know, I'm, I'm being sent down. In fact, one of my colleagues said, we just got an RTC on Westminster Bridge, David. Come on, let's have one last RTC. I'll take a photograph when it's all over. A big bed in the background. Five minutes later, message saying shots fired and you're faced with that. So you have, when you're working within our sort of organisations, you just got to be ready for the unexpected. I know it's a, it's a hell of a cliche. I know that, but you have. This is where, again, you know, use, your, use your apps. If you've got an app, Jessup has an app. It's on my phone. It's on my phone here still, because I still use this in Mountain Rescue. Use it. If you forget something, that's no shame in forgetting it. Just use it. Use it. I find it really interesting what you said about going out to other organizations and looking at what they do. And uh, it's quite yeah. interesting. I'm, I'm doing a little bit of a study at the moment, because as you rightly say, um, nearly, I think everybody you talk to who, who's, who's in this area of expertise struggles with the communications and and we know good communications is critical to good outcome and uh, i've been looking at the aviation industry and how they do it and there's two examples i'm writing a blog for this on our uh, on our website at the moment but one of the excellent areas to look at for a system that had backup manual systems that moved huge amounts of information in a very time critical environment but also had to deploy critical resources that were limited was the battle of britain and how Dowding yeah. set up his his, um, yes. his yeah. fighters. And if you listen to any of the podcasts on that and you do any of the research, what actually was a major contributed success was how they processed information. Yeah. And, and obviously they weren't using digital systems. Uh, it was all about having primary systems to capture the information, secondary systems if they were compromised, and then very much manual and analog systems to, to move that information, but check it, recheck it, and then make decisions. And I've, I've always found that amazing because it's a lot of the criteria that are in major incidents. It's, it's fast onset, it's resource depending, and, and it's accuracy of information that basically puts the resource in the right place to get the best outcome. And that's fascinating. The other, the other part of communications I've found really fascinating is the little, and, I, and I'd recommend any of our listeners to listen to it, is the the communications when the aircraft was coming down on the Hudson River a few years ago. Yes. And Scully. again, yes. you look at information which is absolutely critical um, and how one decision moved to the next decision maker. There was no overloading of the airwaves. The information was always backed up and they had a successful outcome. And decision maker moved to decision maker seamlessly. And I've always looked at those two areas as being the epitome of good communications under crisis. And I think maybe that's something we could learn, you know, when we're looking at outside agencies, how do other people who use time critical information process and use it so, so effectively? Um, I, I, yeah, I, I think if I remember correctly, the, from the minute the birds went into the engines and decisions 
being made was was a number of seconds, but he he'd run through in his mind scenarios, etc., and come to the obviously the correct the correct decision. And I think you need to give yourself just even sometimes just a just a couple of seconds to take a deep breath and just ask yourself, what is it I've got to do when I, either when I get there. Or what have I got to do now I'm here? This was it was a colleague of mine at the Paddington train crash, actually. We arrived at the same time. He came up from the south of the bridge. I came from the north of the bridge. And um, he just said, right, David, let's just take two seconds mm. to think about what we've got to do. He said, you're clinical, so you're going to sort out the clinical side of it. He was actually a senior controller. Um, and they've been on his way to work and being diverted. He said, I'll sort out control for you. Um, he said, but we just need to take a few seconds and decide what we're going to do. And I think that was probably best two or three seconds spent on that particular incident. Uh, it, did, it made me focus on, I'm not here to treat patients. I'm here to take command of this. And I left my all my um, clinical kit in the car. It was just that those two seconds to reiterate to me, in my own mind, I'm not here to treat patients per se. I'm here to get triage going, but to get other things going as well. Mm. Sounds so, like a very wise man you had on your right-hand shoulder that day. He was. He had a chap called Keith Sparks. Very, very nice man. Very mm. nice man. Yeah. But I think, I think radio discipline, you're actually correct. If you don't need to say something, just don't say it. But if you do need to say something, then say it. Speak up and say it. And I think in exercises, you could run a tabletop exercise just on the radio side of it to really get this point home. Just, you know, if you don't need to say something, for God's sake, don't mm. say it. If you do, cut through the chit-chat and say, priority, I need to say, you know, get, get yeah. that message in. Yeah, I think that's important. Certainly when you listen to the, the communications, and it's only a couple of minutes, but nobody says anything It doesn't have to be said. It's purely yeah. decision-driven, mm -hmm. it's outcome-driven, and it's only said by the decision-makers, which I found quite interesting. Yeah. And it seems to be very parallel with what we're trying to do when we deal with multiple casualty crisis management. Yeah. It's a fascinating subject. Yeah. One thing I've sort of been watching with interest is on the mountain, is on the sort of search side of, of what I do in mountain rescue, where we're looking for a missing person and how the police search advisors, they initially have to process huge amounts of information before they ever really press the button to say, we need teams out there searching. Mm -hmm. um, and they, they are taking that critical time, process information. Yes, t time is ticking away by the second, but they, they are taking that critical time to process information, make their plan, and then then get things going and that works so i think we we can we can all of us learn from looking how people do other things that you think well what's missing missing person searching got to do with major incidents mass health incidents well i'm not i'm looking at how the decision makers make mm. those decisions so i think yeah yeah and, and i think a couple of times you said is that is one of the keys to the early success is just taking maybe not a minute but just taking a breath to to get your thoughts together yeah yeah i mean, I'll, I'll never forget key sparks saying dave just take we need to take take breath take a few seconds and I, I've, I've done that since as well thinking right what am I going to do yeah so 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 what I'm getting from that Dave is uh, the, the main areas you seem to brought out is, is communications it's something we can probably expect to be under high stress and yes. it's consistently an issue I suppose part of resolving that is is to practice it to train it and possibly look at what other agencies look at the yes. agencies who do it really well and glean what yeah. we can get from them yeah yeah i mean airways and digital systems really have they have they're progressing they're going to develop and it's going to be it is i hoping it will become as a new new technology comes on stream with with com with comms it is going to get better 
what I think worries me is if we get a deliberate attempt to to interrupt our comms. I think it's one of those things we have to think the unthinkable. Mm. If someone had said to me on the on the seventh of July in two thousand five, you're going to have four four suicide bombers all at once. So, I think so. Mm. We have we have to think the unthinkable and mm-hmm. plan and plan for that. Yeah. So it looks like communications is one of the areas. Uh, yeah. Interoperability, which you've 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 covered yep. in, in, in detail but we have to consider all the agencies and and yep. almost we need to speak the same language but those people working with us need to understand that language and i think that's the other side isn't it the, if i say yes. priority one what does that mean yes. to the fire or the police or the yep. local agencies or the hospital yep. does, does does that can they take that piece of information and can they apply a resource or a decision if i say five priority ones are they understanding what that actually means when it comes to resource management and decision making? I think that that's coming out, isn't it? Interoperability, it, it, same it, language. Yeah. Definitely interoperability. I think had you had you asked me that question, say probably 15 years ago, I'd probably said maybe not. But I think if you asked asking that question now, fire service, police, ambulance, hospitals, yes, coast guard, we use the terminology in in Manchester rescue. So there is that commonality. I mean, to make sure it carries on, I think with that commonality of language, but also needs to come an understanding of what each agency can do. We know what the police service can do, we know what the fire service can do, we know what the ambulance service can do within ourselves. But then you ask the question, do you really? You know, if, if, and we have to, again, bear in mind that the first people responding to these incidents, no disrespect, no, and not the likes of myself or yourself or the senior officers, it's going to be your your frontline operational staff who may not understand fully what the fire service could bring to the party or the police service. So it's going to be your your paramedics on the road, your your first fire crew on scene, your first police officers on scene. And we need to let all stratas of the organisations know and understand what we can all do because it's not going to be the senior managers on scene from the off. Just and, by the, yeah, and, and I think... That's uh, life. Yeah, and I think that's really important. Um, I was um, invited down to a, a triage training exercise down at the National Ambulance Resilience Unit about four or five weeks ago, and we were looking at different forms of triage flow charts, uh, and we would we had human analysis on on who was working best with what flow chart to try and work out the best one forward. But one of the things that came out from about the twenty frontline responders to that who were all experienced you know well they actually came from paramedic um, student all the way up through to paramedic practitioners so there's a whole range of ambulance experience but one of the general traits that came out was we don't do this very often no. we don't train with it very often because of the other pressures on us and this is what once or twice in our career we'll attend to this so we have to understand the people who are attending although they're experts ambulance practitioners are not experts in major incident response and I think understanding that adjusts how we try to help these people respond I think that's quite important it is I think I think this is where the design of the triage tags is is so useful because that they are easy to use but what you need to do is you know if you've got a bit of downtime have a pack on station that can be open and can be used so you can just sit there having a cup of coffee just saying to somebody make them to p2 make them into p1 and I also do encourage, I, I used to encourage, you know, people to use some of this equipment, not so much for the mass charging, but for the, some of the larger scale, you know, the, the big RTC, um, just, just get some of this kit out and just use it so that when you really need it, you're not fumbling around, oh God, how does this blasted tag fold? And then saying, oh, they don't work. Well, I'm sorry, those tags work. I've used 
along with my colleagues, I've used lots of those over the years. They work. Um, but what you need to do is you need to practice with them. And you can do this if you're just sitting in the mesh room or you're sitting in a vehicle um, or you are doing your, you're doing refresher training. Just get a pack out. You know, put, put six or seven flashcards on the table with, with various patients and their vital signs and just say, there you go, people, get the cards out and do them up. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I think that really backs up your third point where you had communications interruptibility is the kit preparation. Part kit, of that preparation yeah. is kit practice, isn't it? It is. You know, yeah. kit prep, you can have the most beautiful package kit, but if you've never practiced with it, it's yeah. just beautifully packaged. Yeah. Um, so it's preparing to use that equipment, I think, is is what you're bringing out, yeah. which is so yeah. important. I'm afraid, again, I'm, I don't want to single out the directors of finance, but, yeah, but you know, this is expensive. I'm afraid this is, we have got to prepare for this and, it, and it, we have to spend money on it, but we also need to allow our staff time to exercise this and exercise the particular equipment. I mean, a, you know, a paramedic, give him a giving set, him or a giving set and say, there you go, they'll do that. Eyes closed, not a problem. But if you're using something like, I don't know, an extract two or a triage tag, which they may not have seen or used for a few months, maybe a year or so, they're going to fumble. And when they really need to, you can't have them fumbling. Mm. Yeah, um, I think that that's hugely important, isn't it? It, it is. I think exercise, 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 but also I think there's other ways you can you can use this equipment, or sorry, exercise with the equipment. It, it, again, hugely important. Hugely. Important. I, I, I think you've hit some absolute key points there. Just just moving on to, to going back to to some of the experience you you, you you've got and in, in, in specific events. Are, are there any stories that stand out? Um, any particular things that happened which stick in your memory that you think would be of use to listeners to, to say this happened and, and this because of this there was an outcome from it and anything in particular you, you, you can think of yeah you you asked you asked me this question of, of you know, quite a while ago and I've, I've been asked it frequently i i find it quite difficult because there are so many but i think i'm going to use three if i may but probably um, that the, there are three things that in my career just stand out. They just, they just stand out. Um, um, one number is going back to the um, Paddington train crash. Um, I'm going to call this patient Sue. It's not her real name, but I'm going to call her Sue. Um, and it again comes back to communication. We all, we've been talking about communication between ourselves, the police service, control, our colleagues, but we must never forget that we're dealing with patients. We have the relative, we have patients that will have relatives, you know, People are watching this going on. The media, are, the media often respond quick, quicker than we can sometimes. And certainly at Paddington, we had CNN, I think it was CNN, setting up whilst we started to deal with this. But if I can come back to Sue, if I may. Sue was um, a lady, she was trapped in one of the trains. She was physically trapped. We couldn't get to her to begin with. And it's around personal communication. And it's not necessarily talking, but also touch. And she was, she was trapped. All I could do was get my hand through some wreckage and I could feel her shoulder. Now, I cannot remember what I said to Sue. I, don't, I remember talking about anything and everything to keep her, to keep her sort of settled and explain we were going to get to her. We were going to get to her. Um, and she was terrified because she could smell diesel fumes um, because the, when the two trains collided, the, the fuel tanks just ruptured. And what she didn't need to know was, was that, that same fuel she could smell was the pet was the diesel that was dripping all over me as well and soaking through my uniform and my colleagues what sure she needed to know was the fact that we were there we were going to get her out and that i was going to stay with her until i could get someone into her to get you out i never actually i never saw sue 
but and I can't remember exactly what I said to her, but what I do remember to this day is the texture of her coat and her shoulder. And I think it was a right, yeah, I think it was a right shoulder I was touching. A sort of corduroy material. But I think for me it was it was communication with your patients. Yes, we're going to be stretched. We're going to be several things going through our minds. We're doing a lot of things, but we must never ever lose the fact we're dealing with patients and they need communications, even if they're in dire, dire straits. And I think this whole thing of touch and with your patients again was for me came to the fore with a lady called Jill Hicks who many people will may well know Jill uh, an astounding lady she lost both her legs at 7-7 but what was interesting Jill wrote a book afterwards about her experiences and it was an interesting perspective of how a patient was viewing the emergency services who came to rescue her and then also the book deals with her in hospital etc etc but for me I think this was one of the triumphs around triage decisions and also where you have to deal where you're working with people who you've never met before and I think Jill is a testament to the success of triage and the principles of triage and also multidisciplinary teamwork and I'd never met any of the I met some of the ambulance staff obviously before but in terms of the two doctors and the nurses that came just offered their help at uh, Russell Square I'd never met in my life before the police officers that carried Jill from the from the train up to the booking hall I'd never met in my life before and I think it's interesting, and I've, I've actually highlighted some words that Jill, these are Jill's own words. And she then says, and then I heard two words, two of the best words I could ever hear. Priority one, and a tag of some sort was placed on me. That sounded fantastic. Now, bear in mind at this point, Jill is, both her legs are shattered, and she is in and out of consciousness, and she is desperately, desperately wounded. She then goes on to say, one man held my hand. I know that's a police officer. I know that. And he didn't let go. I was so cold, but I could feel his warmth. And she remembers that vividly. And I think her survival is a testament to the skill and dedication of a number of agencies. The police service the, who carried her up here, the doctor and nurse. I, I remember saying to a doctor and a nurse, this lady's P1. She's very close to cardiac arrest. Please sort her out. And I retriaged her several times. Now, the ambulance crew that carried that eventually transported her and kept her alive. So, in terms of that, I think it's communication again, but also this inter this ability to work with other other agencies. Some of whom I know for a fact that doctor and nurse they came from Great Ormond Street. So this was not this was not their their day job at all. But I think Jill is one of those survivors that I can honestly I can honestly put down to. Interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary teamwork, using your triage principles. She's, Jill said it, and a tag of some sort was placed on me. So we all knew that at that point she was P1. The system works. It works. Use it. But again, communication with, with everybody. I had to talk to people about what I needed them to do and just people get on with it. But you do need that structure. You do need that structure to, to, hang, your, to hang your plans on. And without that, I don't think any of this, it just wouldn't, it just wouldn't have worked. I know that. And I think we all know that. Um, but we need to practice it. We need to practice and exercise it. Yeah, it's really interesting you talk about Jill. I, I, I had the pleasure of meeting her probably about 12, 13 years ago now. And uh, she really relayed the story to me as well. Um, oh, right. and, I, and I was hugely humbled that we were just like one or 2% of what, what created her, her survival path. But what struck me on... 
her her survival was everything had to be right because if one of the links had been weak, she would have died. And it struck me that that day there was a very very strong chain, almost chain of survival. Is that the comms were right, the the logistics became right, and the resources to sustain her life were, were each link of it was strong, wasn't it? If we'd taken That's, any yeah. bit of that out, she would have died at yeah, that day. I, I think. I think that the personal the personal human communication, you know, from the police officers to me, me to them, myself to the doctors, nurse, doctor and nurse between themselves and to the ambulance crew, etc., were fantastic. But actually, communications in terms of me back to control were dire. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, when I arrived, I'd gone, I'd gone down into the tunnels just to see what was going on down there with one plan in my head, uh, what we're going to do. When I got back up again, the um, bus bomb had gone off and. All my plan was just, my, my colleague said, well, boss, watch me downstairs. There's a bus gone off, uh, blown around the corner. So your your ex, uh, egress route is gone. So it's 90. And, um, but I didn't know that to begin with because I couldn't get comms down in the tunnels. Now that has all changed with, with airwaves. That has changed. I think that brings me on to one of the sort of, one of the other things about, um, I was, humbled to be asked to be one of the, one of the medical legal expert witnesses for, for the second round of Hillsborough inquests, which took place um, just a few years ago. I think as I was reading through that evidence, what really, really struck me was, was just what has changed uh, since 1989 in terms of you now have, you've now got Jessup, you now have Narrow, you have Resilience Direct, you have much better joint training. I would, I would argue not enough of it, but I know I am biased. We have the joint operational, joint organizational learning side of Jessup. You've got the, the joint operating model, which organizations are using. You've got equipment to do the job in terms of triage tags. If I go back to the sort of 1980s, it was a, there were some sorts of tags around, but they were all different. Uh, whereas now there is a, a recognized system and it's interagency. So I think, it was just when I was reflect when I was just reflecting back on things like Hillsborough that occurred in you know late, late eighty nine, and now huge things have changed hugely. I think I'd be very privileged to see that change and to be able to use some of that change. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, I, I have to say, Colin, you know, companies like yourself and particularly you yourself have driven that. Now you said it was about you had a, a very small percentage in in sort of jewels story but it's a big it's a big percentage actually in my personal mind because if i haven't got the equipment to do with to deal with it i can't deal with it so i think those for me are the sort of the three mm. sort of some just three areas there are others i'm sure there are um but i think one thing i've, I've always i've always seen at these incidents is people will never give up people won't give up they will do their utmost be there a police officer firefighter ambulance nurse doctor member of the public Whoever, I've always seen the very, very best of people coming out at major incidents, mass casualty incidents. Always, yeah, and, and I think that's so always. important. I mean, you, you think yeah. of the the complexity of the job that these people are under, and, and often in completely foreign events to to their daily work. Yes, um, yeah. so, some of the the ability just to to cope with what they're dealing with is is so admirable, you know. And 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 you know, we don't. You're right. You said at the beginning we don't always get it right, but I don't think anybody goes there and does half a job, that's for sure. Um, oh, they they oh, do the no. best of their ability. And I think no. that's what we consistently see coming out. People do, yeah. do be beyond 
their best to, to yes. try to try and get it yeah. right, which, which is I think yeah. is something so important for any sort of sub inquiry. And I know we've always got to learn and move forward, but I also think we should recognise that the person put in that position wasn't trying to make good or bad, wasn't trying to make bad decisions. They were tr- with, with the set of parameters they were given. They were making incredibly they were in an incredibly difficult place trying to make the right decisions. Yeah. And yeah. I think that should always be remembered in, in any post-incident debrief. It, I think so. And I think, I think this also comes right back to the original, to, to the very first sort of thing you learn about major incidents which, or mass casualties, which is call early for help. You know, get your methane. Even if it, it turns out it actually is not mass casualties, okay, fine, we can stand people down. But by calling, by getting that message in and declaring it, you are going to get your emergency preparedness department advisors coming and they'll be sitting on your shoulder. They can give you advice. They can give you help. They know a lot of the answers that I, I may not have. I'll turn this and look, what do we do now? And they'll say, well, I would suggest we do this, 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 and this. I think one of the really, really good things that's come in the last, well, it started probably in the, in, in the early 90s and carried on from there, is you see emergency planning and emergency preparedness becoming a very distinct discipline in its own right, which it should be, and has to it has to stay that way. Mm. Uh, and you have people now specialising in emergency preparedness, in how in educating other people how to deal with these these events. You've also got companies, yourself is one prime example, who are dealing specifically in the equipment and whatever else I need. When I say, oh, I mean, you know, people dealing with these events who need the kit we need to deal with it. And I think that that's one big, big difference I've seen. If I look back at Clamry Car Gardens Far, 1981, and Westminster Bridge, you know, 2017, in terms of the kit, the operating models, everything else, you know, really thought there were, well, it's just very nearly, it's 30, 37 years apart, nearly. Um, massive, massive difference. And I, it's only going to, in, that's only going to improve as technology improves, as we start talking with each other, or let's start, we keep on talking to each other about these things. This will improve and our response will get better and better and better. Yeah, and, and, and you know, it's fantastic to see the progression we've, we've, we've really made in this in this specific area and, and listening to your own experience over such a, a length of time and so much diversity, it, it's good to see actually what's coming out is incremental improvement each time, yeah. which has got yeah. to be, be a positive. One of the yeah. things I really took from um, from your answer to that question, because a lot of the time when we're, we're dealing with major incidents, multiple casualties, we, we talk about a lot about logistics, resources, communications, but I think it was really important you brought it back to that personal touch that we are dealing with humans. Um, yeah. They're not because they don't change because they're in a multiple casualty incident. They, that simple thing of holding a hand and basic human comfort is so important. And we still need that empathy when we're there, which we all bring anyway, I think. But I I think that was so important that the one thing almost ingrained in you is how that simple act of holding a hand made such a difference to patient care. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's a fascinating memory to bring out from all the experiences you've got to say that's important i think that's that's a massive thing to bring out to to anybody who who goes forward into these types of incidents that simple things and and interactions at a human level are so important we have got to remember that in the midst of all this whatever it is be it a fire a bombing a bridge collapse whatever in there are human beings 
and they need our help. But I think also we, we must never ever forget our own staff. Mm. Never. I mean, I, I remember saying to one of my one of my colleagues at, at uh, one of these incidents. I'm, I'm not going to say which one. But one of these incidents that um, he was stressed out. You need to get away from this. Come here. Sit down. And he said, oh, I've, "I've got to get away." I said, "No, no, don't worry. We we can we can we can we can manage. We can cope. You need to take a rest." We mustn't forget that our own staff are human. Mm. And it, we also, th- I think, quite often, some op- sometimes operational staff forget the stresses of the control staff mm. and the logistics staff and the press office and the secretarial staff who are all affected by this, often at different levels and at different times. So you're often your clinical research and audit units who are then looking through the PRFs, maybe, sorry, the patient report forms maybe two, three days, weeks, whatever, later, they may not, you know, you have to think about that. So I think we need to also remember that we've, we've got our staff are human, but also all of our staff are involved in this. It's not just myself and the frontline staff dealing with the patients that get involved in this and are affected by it. It's everybody. Control, the control staff taking the first calls, control staff trying to deal with maybe a blizzard of information coming over the airwaves. You know, I do come back to your secretarial staff, your logistics staff, your fitters, um, anybody that you employ, they are going to be affected. And you have to remember that. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I, I remember reading many years ago when I first started studying the subject was um, people involved in major incident disasters were, were described, I thought, very cleverly as normal people reacting to abnormal events. Yeah. They're not, you know, these aren't superheroes. These are just normal people, whether no. they're the patient or the, the rescue services, no. but they have to go into very abnormal circumstances. And, and that web of who's involved isn't just about what I would call the pointy end. It, it's quite a spider web of people who are involved at different levels. Yeah. And, and, and I think it's important that, and as you brought out, that consideration of how that web of involvement has how those people have reacted and are coping with it as well is really important to think about um hugely important i think so if, if you were to actually i suppose actually plot out time wise the amount of time i've spent at i forget how many mass characters it is now but then look at that in terms of percentage of my total career time it's tiny it's mm. tiny um you know, I joined the ambulance service, not with this subject in mind, but just you know, joined the ambulance service and helping people. I was my, expected my normal day job to be heart attacks, you know, broken legs, illnesses, child, child is ill, you know, this sort of thing. If someone said to me, you know, you're joining to deal with, you know, mass courage incidents, I'd have said, well, no, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm joining it to be working in the ambulance service and just helping the ordinary person day to day with ordinary you again use that term advisedly mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. ordinary ambulance work so yeah, I think you're, actually, you're actually right it's ordinary it's ordinary people mm-hmm. being put in extraordinary circumstances yeah. and and then doing extraordinary things yeah i i, I always remember that quote of summing it up so well about uh, what the context of the the, pe- the involvement of people were uh, i always thought it was wonderful just just to sort of summarize i mean it's just been such a wonderful conversation but just to try and summarize um some of the the areas we've talked at today if, if you were to take sort of three points from from what we've talked about today that you think could enhance 
uh, anybody listening to this could enhance their future response. Is there any sort of three points they could take away that you think would be the, the most, or the most, or based on your experience, would be the most sort of critical things for them to think about and, and maybe help in their own preparation? Yeah, I think, I think one, one is certainly history. Go back in history, look at pre, and I, and I don't mean just you know, 20 years ago or 30 years ago, I also mean last week, the week before that, last year. And not necessarily the mass coverage incidents as well, but go back and look at previous incidents. Now go back and look at the, the big RTC that may have had, you know, may have had one fatality, but other things were going on, etc. Um, look at those, learn from those, just see how and but then also from looking at the big incidents, just learn, understand why Jessup has evolved. Why is Jessup, you know, very keen on the message of methane? Why is Jessup looking at joint operational model? Why is Jessup insisting upon joint organizational learning? Just look at what, why, why are they looking at those? And there's very good reasons why, because that wasn't happening previously. We need to make sure that carries on into, into the future. Do go and talk to your emergency preparedness departments. They may be called something different in your service, but you, you know the type of department I'm referring to um, and involve them in your own education, your own development um, exercises. You know, do, do go and talk to them and get them involved. Know and understand what other tools are out there to assist you and the public. So I'm talking about things like Jessup, Resilience Direct, Citizen A. They're just some of the examples. And I think also this is probably aimed a bit more at some of the, the sort of junior managers up to more senior managers. Just know what problem sites you've got in your locality. You know, if you've got some problem sites, do think about them. You know, is is that fuel dump? down the road if that were another Bunsfield for example now what how would that affect what would I do those sorts of things I think another one for me and I think this is this is really hit home for me when I was working in London is use your recurring big events things like New Year's Eve festivals carnivals football stadia all these things that happen on a regular basis but thankfully often go off without any problems whatsoever use those as a, as a, as a training area for your more junior staff don't make it the preserve of the you know, the senior manager to be always in charge at X, Y, or Z event. Get your more junior staff and say, right, okay, fine. I'm going to be sitting on your shoulder, but you know, I'm going to get get them involved and get them to take command and control because that's a safe learning environment. You can just step in and say, I wouldn't do that if I was you. <laughs> but then when you're not around and the proverbial sit the fan, they've at least they've had some experience. Use things like II March as briefing tools in other areas. So again, it becomes second nature to you if you then have to go and brief a multi-agency group because they're expecting II March. And if you're using some other system, they're going, you might be looked at a bit, a bit askance. So and other, and other processes. So make sure you've, again, back on the Jessup site, you really understand what's on that site. Know your own equipment. And I come back to the triage, particularly the triage tags, you know, encourage your staff just to use them um, on a much more day-to-day basis and I think so I think coming back to these just these big events yes they're vibrant they're exhilarating but they're very challenging sometimes in terms of command and control uh, but that's a brilliant training ground for people and then just exercise equipment because quite often exercises we turn up in the vehicles and we park the vehicles quite close to the patients but that's not reality. That is not reality. I don't think I've been to, just trying to think, I don't think I've been to any mass car incident where I could get a vehicle nice and close. Everything had to be carried and often over rough ground or, you know, whatever. So exercise realistically, realistically. I think exercise, my sort of third one, exercise wherever possible with other agencies. No, it's contentious. 
costs money. A good exercise is, is expensive, but they will pay you dividends in the in the future. Your banking experience by running good ex and particularly multi-agent exercises. Can I have a fourth one? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think for me, I think for it's the media. The media are often seen as the enemy, which is unfortunate. That they can be your ally, very much so. But I do think you need to really train all staff how to deal with the media, um, because again, I come back to my point that it, often it's not senior managers there first. It is your frontline staff who, who, for whatever the reason, might just say the wrong thing to the press through absolutely no no malice of forethought, but it's just they're focused on one thing and they're, they're, they're sideswiped by, by the media. So I think know how to deal with them. I think I've still got mine. I think it's in my, in my wallet still. My little media, my little media card, they're really useful. Um, and just know, how do I refer, say to somebody, Go and talk to our press officer and know where they are. But I think that that actually that could be another subject for you to, to get maybe some media, another podcast for you. Um, and and, and you're get, still get some, right. Yeah. Get some media people in. Um, but they've got a job to do. So have we. But they can be helpful to you. But there are occasions when I've been. <laughs> the media. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. I, I did a, a couple, a, one module in media training as part of my degree in disaster management. And uh, it was fascinating just having that little bit of coaching about one, how, how to, to, I suppose, deal with them correctly, but also realizing what they could provide as a resource if you yes. if you hit the right buttons, what they yes. could do for you. And you're right, if, if we can understand the animal that it is, no, no, I don't mean that in any adverse way. Uh, but I know what you mean, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. We, we can actually start using it as a resource and, and, not, and not be scared of it. But there is, a, again, it comes back to training and, and, and understanding what it is you're dealing with. Because yeah. it, it, it's got, it's, there's definitely a specific way to deal with this, isn't there? Or the set up, there's a, there's a structure to deal, deal with it, I think. There is. I mean, I, I think like yourself, I... I... You know, the London Service did some very specific media training with 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 a lot of a lot of their managers, and we were being in, we were being interviewed by people that they were they were for the BBC who knew their job inside out, and it was very valuable, very valuable. Uh, I think that that's it, and and I actually like your recommendation of maybe we'll try and get somebody from the media on. Yeah. Just, just yeah. talk about what they're trying to get from it. From yes. what is yeah. their agenda when they yeah. when they talk about multiple casualties? Because if we can understand their agenda. We, we can we can work with them as opposed yes. to you know to clashing heads which, which I think is important well, there's some absolutely wonderful points there Dave you know learning from the history of events the reoccurring events all talking the same language going back to the familiar being familiar uh, that's a big word being familiar um, with your equipment and, and practicing at all different levels with it you know working on your realistic exercises from very small tabletops through to your your, your larger yeah. instance and then understanding the media and having training that I think there's some some wonderful things we, we can take away from that and the stories you've shown us this, today and some of your experiences I, I think are hugely important um, and some of the reoccurring events are, are, are always fascinating to hear about and talk about how we could possibly solve them so it's been absolutely as always fascinating to, to talk to you about your experiences is, is there anything else you would like to add? Is there anything else we've not covered you would like to add at all? I think probably ju just, just I've, I've touched on mountain rescue a couple of times. So just, just to remind me, I've, whilst I've been working in the ambulance service, I was also 
working in mountain rescue, uh, which as people know is voluntary uh, in the UK. But what is interesting is is that um, mountain rescue, the RNLI, the which is sorry for, my, for our overseas colleagues, that's our lifeboat institution, our lowland search teams, uh, and other similar, I mean cave rescue, etc. Uh, as well, um, we are also using Jessup principles. Um, as I said, as I mentioned, I'm, I'm now water and flood uh, incident manager trained, etc. A part, a part of that course was very specific around Jessup, so that when mountain rescue, lowland, RNLI, etc., dealing or talking with the police service, the fire service, we're all using the same doctrine, uh, and that is so important, mm. um, so important. Something which is interesting was it's good to see, and interesting to see, um, and we're all just talking the same language. No, I, and I, and three I different think... organisations. I mean, yeah, we're all voluntary, but able to deal with and talk with our blue light partners. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it comes back to what we were saying: is understand who's going to be involved, but make sure that they're all bought into the, the, the song sheet. We're all singing off, really, isn't it? And yes. make sure we we we're, we're, yeah. we know where that that piece of music is, and we all we all yeah. sing. <laughs> yes, <laughs> to yeah. use an yeah. analogy, which is probably yes. not great, but <laughs> no, no, no. But I thought, yeah, uh, yeah, no, very appetizing, yeah, fantastic. Appetite. Like Dave. Thank you so much for your time. It's it's always fascinating to talk to you. I am sure the knowledge you've put across tonight will have put huge benefits to, to everybody listening. Um, if anybody would like to ask any questions from the podcast tonight, we will put a link on onto our LinkedIn page and onto our website. Please feel free to contact us, www.tsgassociates.co.uk. So thank you for everybody for listening. We'll be back soon with another unique subject and colleague, and we'll hope we, hopefully be talking to everybody again quite soon. Take care, everybody. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you, Roshni. Bye, everybody. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this edition of TSG Talk. We hope you found the content of benefit. Should you have any questions or require additional information, please visit tsgassociates.co.uk.